Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where we interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. is sponsored by SOAS Law Society. Aligning our values of inclusivity and diversity in the legal profession, SOAS stands out as a law society that cares about its members. So if you're at least curious, be sure to check them out at soaslawsoc.com. Welcome to our final episode of the season, guys. I know, I know, it's been quite a journey and we've been through a lot together. We've covered sports law, life of the United Nations, we've even gone to space. So you're probably thinking, how are we going to top it all off for a season finale? Well, we thought we'd make a topic a bit more closer to home to cover an area of law that, to be honest, I kind of assumed existed, but never really heard, let alone thought of before. That is the rules and regulations covering man's best friend. Animals. That's right. Here this week to reveal to us the world of animal protection law is Edie Bowles, co-founder of Advocates for Animals, the UK's first animal protection law firm. In the episode, we discussed the growth of animal protection law as both a practice area, but also a substantive body of law, the broader trend of professionalization with animal protection, and whether the events of COVID and Brexit make the case for further animal protection or detract from it. Aside from animals, we ask Edie about what running your own law firm is like and how to navigate the delicate balance of pursuing your passion with achieving financial security in one's career development. So without further ado, Sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. Good morning, Edie, and welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? I'm very good as well. Now, before we jump into the world of animal protection law, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So hi, everyone. My name is Edie, Edie Bowles. I'm a solicitor and co-founder of Advocates for Animals, which is the UK's first and only fully specialised animal protection law firm. So I've worked in, I've worked as an animal lawyer for over five years, but I've been involved in animal law in a voluntary capacity for over 10. Um, I very much enjoy working in this area. It's a huge passion of mine, and I'm really grateful for this opportunity to talk to Max today and hopefully inform you all a bit about the area. And we are very appreciative of you taking the time. So why don't you tell us what animal protection law is? Because it's not something that at least I have seen on the LLB syllabus or in any type of courses before. Yeah, unfortunately so. And I hope it does start to pop up on those syllabuses. So at Advocates for Animals, because I mean, because this area is so niche, it's kind of up for grabs what you interpret it as. So Advocates for Animals, um, we've interpreted animal law as furthering animal protection. So largely this means advising on and assisting clients with enforcing, you know, the substantive animal law. So these being protections under animal welfare legislation. So some examples of that are the um, Animal Welfare Act, the Zoo Licensing Act, um, the Animal Scientific Procedures Act. There's lots of farming regulations. So those kind of things we, we help advise on. But we also advise on things like freedom of information, undercover investigations and proofing campaign materials. So anything that can really help our clients further their campaigning objectives. 
because our clients do tend to be animal protection NGOs, but we have done work with individuals as well if we feel that um, we could set a useful precedent in, in the field. So in that sense, it's both, you know, a substantive body of law, but also a practice area. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, I mean, the closest thing you could kind of think of it as is, is it's kind of like campaigning law. So if you think of your kind of your amnesties or your liberties and what they do with the law, I mean, they're relying obviously on kind of human rights legislation, but they're also trying to further those protections and ensure that they're applied to, you know, it within the field. And so on your blog, Advocates for Animals, you state that the UK is regarded as a world leader in animal protection law, yet your law firm is the first of its kind in the UK. Why is that? Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, I mean, just to mention on, on the first point about the UK being a world leader, the UK does still have some of the best animal protections, but we are being overtaken. I do think that that's uh, worth noting. So, for example, in Switzerland, the dignity um, of an animal is recognised. There's also um, social rights legislation. So if animals benefit from being housed together, together you're not allowed to keep that animal by um, themselves. The US um, also has legal teams trying to recognise the personhood of animals because currently animals are recognised as property under the law. We, we don't really have a similar thing over here. Um, following science, other countries have also started to recognise crustaceans under their animal welfare legislation, such as uh, New Zealand, Norway and Switzerland. Again, this isn't something that we've done in the UK yet. But parking that, parking where we're falling behind and looking at why a law firm like ours has only just um, you know, been developed despite a long history of progress in the UK. Well, the catalyst for this is not really one thing, but more of a collection of things such as you know, the birth of, an in- of the internet, a more educated public, those kind of things um, that are kind of evolving a collective conscience and the attitudes towards animals are starting to shift as a result so you know historically this really was a fringe movement and lots of the developments you know can can claim their inception from that so it's absolutely not the case that historically the movement wasn't doing great things because it was but now what we're seeing is this kind of professionalization of the area and people being drawn to it with a range of skill sets so, you know it's now filled with vets scientists data analysts and you know advocates for animals hopes to add you know lawyers to that list so i think it is just the kind of the evolution of the professionalization of the field really it's very interesting. You, you talked about kind of the, how the advent of the internet and the increased education of the public of animal welfare, at least from my experience, I've seen that in the last decade, there's been an increase in prominence of, say, documentaries focused on animal welfare, ranging from kind of the fishing industry to cattle industry to just dogs and, and, and the things that go on. We also talked in previous conversations about, you know, your clients kind of animal rights groups increasingly kind of resorting to the law to upholding animal standards and welfares. Would you say that this is also due to the advent of the internet or is it due to something else? No, absolutely. I think it I think it's all related really. It's it's this momentum of, you know, this growing awareness. And you mentioned those documentaries exactly that, you know, people can't really escape this information now, which is which is, you know, that's one of the real positives. I know the internet and social media um you know, goes under a lot of scrutiny and has a lot of negative press. But but the fact that, you know, this education, this material is getting out there and, you know, it really is the truth of the lives that animals have lived for, you know, 
a significant period of time. And so it's incredibly good that the, you know, and important that the public are now aware of that. And so absolutely following on from that, you know, there is just the, this momentum and this momentum attracts a different type of person or, or not even a different type, but just more. So animal groups are now becoming increasingly sophisticated, you know, with various high level approaches due to these, you know, due to different people being drawn to the movement. So, you know, they use data lobbying, they analyze consumer behavior, um, they request food labeling again to help raise awareness. There's some animal groups or some some groups with, you know, sympathies in this area that are helping develop alternatives to animal products, you know. And so the activities of a standard animal group now include just, yeah, like I said, this really high level uh, performance. So data and scientific analysis, campaigning, outreach, undercover investigations, generally just holding industry and government to account. Um, so, you know, since since the birth of Advocates for Animals, law has been added within that. So prior to us, you know, there was the odd law firm that um, was, you know, that would take on the odd case, but it was largely inaccessible. So Advocates for Animals has just been able to fill in that gap, add to this toolbox that animal groups now have. And again, and again you know, as animal protection groups have become increasingly sophisticated, it just would be counterproductive to have anything other than a professional and specialist legal team behind them as well. So it, it really has kind of had this perfect synergy. And, and as a result of that, you know, we're seeing such progress. So, you know, not only are we seeing changes in law, we're seeing changes, most importantly, in behaviour. And it, and it really is this multi-pronged approach of just having different skills, adding, adding what they can to the field. It sounds like it's a logical step of this increasing professionalization and, and the increasing prominence of animal welfare, which brings me to my next question. I mean, you know, right now we're in the midst of a, of a global pandemic and early on in the pandemic, it was reported that, you know, the COVID uh, virus was thought to originate out of uh, a wet market due to cross-contamination of species because of uh, bats. So I was wondering, you know, within the increasing professionalization and sophistication of animal welfare, whether the event and the provenance of, of the COVID-19 virus has, you know, further strengthened the cause for animal welfare and animal protection, or has it detracted from it in the sense that the priority now has been overwhelmingly to save lives, uh, human lives? Mm. Yeah, it's been really interesting um, what, what's happened since COVID. I would say overall it's, it's helped raise awareness really. And I would probably, you know, I could argue that that's because the this field is, is well-placed to be able to make the required noise to draw attention to, to what we've seen you know, the origins of COVID and how to prevent a further pandemic down the line. You know, we, but there have been, there have been, um, you know, setbacks insofar as, like you said, sometimes this stuff has got drowned out by the, the human related casualties, um, which of course are incredibly important and need the attention. But, you know, there, there have, we have seen some um, positive progress as well and some light being shone on the origins of the problem. So, for example, in the wake of COVID, um, the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress in China announced a ban on the hunting, breeding, trading, transporting and consumption of wild animals for food. So that's obviously in direct response to COVID. And in fact, in the UK, uh, recently, I think a few weeks ago, an early day motion in Westminster uh, was tabled, uh, which essentially 
calls for, you know, uh, formal debate. Um, uh, this the CDM was calling for a debate on the ban on ending intensive farming. The reason why it did that was not only recognising the extreme suffering in intensive farming, but it also recognised the disease and pandemic risks that comes with the intensive farming model. So just to explain what some of those disease uh, and pandemic risks are with intensive farming, experts um, at the European Food and Safety Agency have recognised that rearing animals in high-stress environments is more likely to uh, lead to viral infections. Um, DEFRA have confirmed that a really, you know, highly uh, pathogenic version of avian flu strain is is now within the within the within the system. And you know, we are seeing throughout COVID. In fact, we were seeing outbreaks of bird flu within within intensive farming within the UK so it really is all tied together our treatment of animals and then the disease risks and pandemic risks that come with that they're just they're inseparable there's no silver lining of COVID but it is important that we learn from our mistakes and thankfully some of that message is getting through you know and just to really hit this home you know over 70 percent of farmed animals in the uk are farmed in intensive conditions so this is a really serious problem and it's something that yes covid has definitely shone a light on interesting and i think this naturally leads into my next question because this problem doesn't seem to be you know a domestic or or national but rather an international problem i mean given that the how covid has spread like wildfire across the world, this seems to need, say, a coordinated international effort, which is why I was surprised, you know, when reading on your website that 80% of animal welfare legislation in the UK is, is sourced from EU law. And I was wondering, given the advent of Brexit, how this would affect, say, the efforts of animal protection in the UK? Is this, say, a detraction a negative one in the sense that it allows kind of the UK to or jeopardizes kind of the animal protection welfare now secured? Or is this kind of more in line with, you know, what some supporters of Brexit have been saying? that This is the opportunity for the UK to go further and set kind of a higher standard than probably previously was the EU norm. Yeah, um, I think you've I think you've kind of hit the, the the nail on the head. Really, it's it's a bit of both. So a significant you know a significant amount of law has come from the EU. However, it is worth noting that that lots of that law would have come into force as a result of the UK's influence within the European Union. You know, we in, in many ways we really were the animal welfare leaders within the European Union. Like I said, not with everything, and sometimes falling behind, but but you know, large. Actually, that was the case. So, you know, I think one of the biggest tragedies of it in terms of animal welfare is that we lose that influence over a huge, uh, huge block of countries. The positive thing from from going is that whilst we were in the EU, we were limited with some of the legislation that we could pass in the UK. You know, there was a the, the purpose of most of that legislation was to harmonise, you know, the standards. And so, in some ways, we were bound by those standards. And at some point, you know, we were wanting to go higher, but we couldn't. So, for example, whilst in the EU, we weren't able to ban the import of fur products, we weren't able to ban live exports with animals and experiments, all of these things. We weren't able to go higher than the standards that the EU set, despite, I think, at times, you know, where we could have. So 
I think it kind of frees us a little bit and hopefully we will see some positive developments as a result. But one thing I think we really have to be careful of is making sure that we don't dilute those standards. So like I said, the EU would kind of set a set a benchmark. Um, and like I said, you know, there's a real possibility of going above that benchmark. But the concern is that at some points we might go below. So, for example, importing products, we might not, you know, import products from the EU of lower standards anymore when we would have had to prior. But we might now start making trade deals with other countries and importing products uh, animal products from other countries with lower standards, which would obviously increase the market demand for those. And so that's definitely something we need to be watchful of and something we were protected from whilst in the EU. Has there been any indication recently as to which way the UK government is tilting? I mean, I can understand it's it's hard to say given <laughs> the vast multitude of things going on, but from your perspective, have you seen any indication from the government Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the biggest one, I don't know if, if you or the listeners caught all the stuff about um, chlorinated chickens. So the reason why this is important from an animal welfare perspective, so chlorinating chickens is not something that happened in the EU. And it was something that um, something that wasn't allowed to be imported into the EU. It was predominantly on a health and safety kind of basis. But anyway, the reason it's important for from an animal welfare perspective is because what happens in the US is after killing the chickens, they wash them in chlorine to kill bacteria, essentially. But the need to do that tends to indicate these chickens are coming from lower welfare housing systems, you know, where these diseases are kind of being born and being created. So it's it's definitely indic- indicative of a whole kind of problematic system. It got some attention, I think, around the Brexit debate. And there have been some kind of suggestion that it's not going to happen. And then every now and again, something kind of slips through the net that it might be happening. But that's just one example of a worrying trend that might happen on Brexit. And that's just one of many things that can happen for it. If we're importing any goods, any farming goods from the US, you can pretty much predict that they're coming from a lower welfare system than animals live in the EU. So I hope that I hope that we don't see that. I hope we don't see a rise in importing goods from countries like the US where they have very few animal protections. And right now it, it really is just up in the air. One one thing's been chickens, the next has been fish. So overfishing particularly has generated a lot of controversy and discussion, I mean, both from one sense in terms of the territoriality of, of British waters and, and, you know, fishing boats, but also in terms of fish welfare, um, not only in the UK, but but across the world. Would you mind kind of explaining to the audience in a bit of a bite-sized nutshell of, of what's going on currently in this area? Yeah, so I don't know if you saw Seaspiracy. I have not, but uh, I've heard I've heard great things. So it's definitely on my on my bucket list to watch. Yeah, yeah, I recommend anyone watching that film. I mean, you know, I work in this field, and my mind was blown by what by what I saw. I learned a hell of a lot, and it's just such a compelling argument as to you know as to, as to the problems that fishing and fish farming create really so just to explain a bit about what's been going on in the field even you know prior to prior to seaspiracy so what we're seeing now is many animal groups so many of our clients um, are moving to work in the area of fish welfare the reason being is you know fish fish are farmed and fished in such high numbers that they're not even measured in numbers they're measured in tons that really shows the scale of the problem it's you know it's 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 huge 
we are not only destroying our oceans as a result of that, fish farming also doesn't present, you know, a, a better scenario for, you know, for disease reasons, for pollution reasons, you know, the, and these are just the environmental reasons, not even the animal welfare. It's essentially a very po- problematic industry. Now, for ages, this area has just been neglected. It's been neglected for, you know, for many reasons, not due to, you know, people within the animal movement not caring, but I imagine, you know, there's there's been a maybe a lack of science at times showing the sentience of fish. That's now changing. We're seeing more and more science showing how fish suffer, how they socialise, those kind of things. And also, you know, it's quite difficult to, to make people care about fish, which is a real shame because, you know, they like other animals, they are sentient beings. And so it's 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 kind of a difficult area to get people to really pay attention to. You know, it's quite easy to get people to pay attention to something to do with dogs. But when you get to kind of fish and chickens and those kind of animals, people kind of have more of a, a blind spot, I think. So it's just about kind of addressing these issues. And we're seeing a kind of an increased appetite for these animal groups addressing these issues head on and raising awareness because currently fish do receive very little protection under the law they do receive some welfare protection but not very much and in fact recreational fishing don't really receive any animal protections um but yeah so so where those animal protections exist we're working with animal groups to try and ensure that they're being enforced these laws and where they don't exist the animal groups are lobbying for improved standards to ensure that you know fish are receiving the same protections as their terrestrial counterparts. When we talk about intensive farming, at least the the way that I very much got to learn about, you know, the cruelty behind the animal industry has been with the intersectionality with environmental groups and, you know, how over intensive farming leads to more kind of pollution and leads to kind of increased global warming. I'm just wondering whether you find a lot of intersectionality and cooperation between animal protection legislation and environmental legislation or animal rights groups and environmental uh, groups? So indirectly, yes, because human activities are constantly encroaching on natural habitats, which is, um, of course, an environmental issue and an animal protection issue as you're depriving animals of their homes. Um, However, the wildlife laws that do exist tend to be more for environmental purposes than animal protection. And what I mean by this is that they focus on conservation rather than the individual animals. So conservation is more about protecting the species, whereas animal protection law is about protecting any number of animals. So from the individual animal to a large group, and it's about protecting these animals from suffering. Uh, That being said, these wildlife laws do have um, an indirect consequence of protecting certain animals from certain treatment. So under CITES, which is the Convention of International Trade in Endangered Species, certain species are protected from certain trading activities, which of course will protect animals from suffering. And our domestic wildlife law does protect certain species from things like hunting or disturbing habitats. So like I said, there are these kind of indirect animal protection benefits. There are, however, often broad exemptions under wildlife law. It's also worth noting that in some areas, there might even be a conflict between environmental law and animal protection law. So for example, chemical testing on animals is sometimes required by law to protect the to protect the environment. But of course, this is not um, animal friendly. It's also uh, sometimes the case that 
culling of animals takes place for environmental reasons, which of course um, could not be deemed animal protection. So some indirect similarities, but at the same time, kind of, you know, not completely cohesive with one another. Yeah, definitely. And so just to kind of finish off all the the interesting trends going on in the industry, we we began this conversation with the increasing professionalization of animal protection as a kind of body of substantive law, but also as a profession. And I was wondering whether this, you know, increasing trend of professionalization would, in your opinion, lead to uh, revisiting to the status of pets and animals. Uh, you know, you talked about how some jurisdictions kind of recognize their sentience and in culture, we call, you know, pets man's best friend, yet legally they're the equivalent of chattel, which is a, an interesting kind of unique paradox in a way. Do you feel that with the increasing sophistication and professionalization of animal protection, animal welfare, that countries would start to revisit you know, how they classify pets and animals in the future? Yeah, I, I really do. I, I, it's something, as I mentioned earlier, it's something that in the US they are actively, there's a group called the Non-Human Rights Project, and they're actually actively uh, working in, in a kind of legal campaign capacity to get certain animals recognised as legal persons under the law. Um, so that's that's just one example of that. But even kind of outside of that direct kind of targeting, I definitely see it as something that's going to unfold in time because, you know, nobody who interacts with an animal sees an animal as property. You know, they're, they're very aware when you see an animal, you know, how much joy they bring, how they, you know, how they share this planet with us. And, and just to kind of see them as some sort of kind of inanimate object is just not an accurate um portrayal of, of, of what an animal is. And so I, I think at some point the law is going to have to catch up with the reality of that. I don't know what it'll look like. Um, advocates for animals, we're seeing the first step is just trying to get the argument in front of the judge that at the very least the welfare of an animal should be considered before their property status. That's the kind of a first step that, that we're involved in. But other than that, I'm, I'm not sure what it'll look like at this at this point. Yeah. And I can imagine this is also something that will very much depend on the cultural values of, of different jurisdictions and kind of uh, these different countries' relationships with animals. Yeah, absolutely. So now let's go back into what you do as an animal protection lawyer. So you talked about beforehand how animal protection law could be both described as you know the substantive body of law and, and different kind of regulations therein, but also in terms of the practice area and the campaigning law. So what does your typical week look like? So the range is actually vast. It's a lot broader than I think someone, you know, would realise by just hearing the term animal law. I think animal law makes it sound, or at least sounds like it's a fairly small area when it's not. And I think one of the reasons for this is because the same species of animal can quite often receive different legal protections depending on a situation they find themselves in. So just to give you an example, uh, let's take the rats. A rat will receive different legal protections if they find themselves in a laboratory compared to if a rat found themselves as a companion in someone's home or compared um, with if if a rat found themselves uh, deemed a pest. So I think that really illustrates how this practice area is as vast as it is. So with that in mind, I think it probably makes sense to 
break down the work of an animal lawyer in terms of the different animal industries that exist. I'll, of course, have to be fairly vague um, with the details due to client confidentiality, but I hope to give you just a bit of a, a flavour. So in terms of the work that we do um, with animals in experiments, so we do a lot in this field, one of the recent cases that we did here involved uh, chemical tests on animals and specifically involved uh this, the principle of read across. So read across essentially states that where you have data from one chemical test, you should read across that data and apply it to a chemical of a similar property and essentially to avoid a duplicated animal, te animal test. And this, this is kind of underpinned by the concept that animal tests should only be carried out as a last resort. Despite this, you do often find that the European Chemical Agency will request animal tests where we would argue the principle of read across should be applied. So we work with one of our clients to try and avoid that and ensure the read across is applied wherever possible. In terms of animals in agriculture, so again, we do a lot of work in this field. In fact, one of the things I think we are increasingly doing a lot of um, are, is work in relation to undercover investigations. So we're not the ones that carry out the undercover investigation, our clients would be. But what we do is we help ensure that they are, or at least we advise our clients on how to conduct them in as risk-free way as possible. There's a lot of complex risks uh, and legal risks involved in undercover investigations. So we just really help identify what those are. We've also helped in, in, in this field, we've also helped clients um, identify where systemic unlawfulness is taking place. So what you can sometimes find is that something that's fairly common practice isn't necessarily lawful. And in fact, to be honest, I think this probably goes back to what we we're saying earlier about the fact that, you know, just prior to us, there, there weren't animal lawyers. So certain things were probably just taking place without anyone identifying whether they were legal or not. So we help our clients really understand where there's arguable cases or not. Uh, we've also, and this kind of feeds into this, we've also done quite a bit of work um, on enforcement in this field. So enforcement of animal law is pretty poor across the board. It's just across the board. It's not really deemed a priority. And in fact, that, that that's the same across the globe. However, we've particularly noticed that our clients are involved in animal farming want to know more about this and so we've helped look at where there's poor enforcement and advised on what action can be taken and as mentioned we've also done a bit of work on fish farming in terms of wildlife so again a lot of a lot of experience in this field we've advised um, on the badger cull and in fact we've looked at other ways where the badger cull is potentially unlawful so there are some provisions of the burn convention which um, the badger curl is arguably contrary to. We've also done work uh, with CITES. So we've recently made uh, two complaints to CITES in relation to shipments of protected species into China. And we've also done some work on fur trapping and fur farming. So I think that this list should really indicate that on a daily and weekly basis, we do have a vast range of work, uh, of areas that we help with. And so, you know, it really is never boring. That's quite fascinating, though, that the range and, and also, you know, 
within these ranges, it's not only, say, different areas to kind of animal welfare, whether it be kind of, you know, from scientific testing to undercover investigations to kind of a more, you know, systemic regulatory view to endangered animals, but also in terms of the areas of law that are involved. So on the one hand, you're having data privacy, trespass, you know, kind of public law. Would you consider yourself a generalist or, or a specialist? Hmm. I think both, really. Um, So everyone at Advocates for Animals is a specialist on the substantive animal law. And we really are the only ones in the country that are at this point. However, we are also all generalists when it comes to the broad objective of wishing to help our clients in any way we can. So, yeah, a a bit of both, but definitely the, the specialist when it comes to animal protection law. And have you been able to, if you're able to give us an example of of the direct impact that your work can have or that one can have in animal protection law? There's there's quite a few. All of our clients, the work is phenomenal and so impressive. And they're they're changing, you know, they're changing the law, they're changing the systems, they're changing behaviour. So, I mean, there's no end to the change an individual or a group can do. Um, Just one example of a case that we did um, that I think potentially, you know, it starts it starts building on what we were discussing earlier in terms of the property status. It's a case involving a dog called Sylvie. So Sylvie um, was the rescue dog. She went to a rescue charity and then went to a fosterer. So I don't know if people know the foster system, but rescue centres can send animals to foster homes while they find their, you know, the forever home. So anyway, this animal went to the foster home and prior, you know, even prior to that, Sylvie's was not in very good health. She had several different issues and the foster carer really felt that to rehome Sylvie in this late stage of her life would actually be incredibly detrimental to Sylvie the dog and as a result of that wanted to adopt Sylvie the dog and in fact got a veterinary opinion that said this was accurate that if Sylvie does get rehomed it won't be you know it'd be detrimental to her welfare anyway due to the arrangement that our client had with the rescue centre the rescue centre started to demand the animal back Um, they didn't want the animal for themselves there was no suggestion that our client was um causing any kind of ill treatment to the animal in fact they recognized that you know this foster carer was a good foster carer but you know we couldn't really get to the bottom of why they wanted the animal back so desperately there was no indication that they wanted yeah like i said the animal for themselves as a pet or anything like that and so it, it felt very um peculiar that they wanted this animal back anyway we wouldn't usually get involved in a case like this because we you know as a rule we don't get involved in cases disputes between different animal groups but the reason we did in this case is because we felt that it was an opportunity to get a judge to consider the welfare of an animal above the animal's property status so of course if it was a pure property argument you know, you may be able to argue, in fact, it, you know, it's a compelling argument that Sylvie should go back to the rescue centre, you know, as as, their, as the owner. But of course, if you're considering welfare above property, Sylvie should stay with the foster carer. So anyway, we took this case to court and we were successful. The judge didn't go as far as saying that, you know, they were considering welfare above the property status. Instead, what the judge did is they relied on their discretion and instead just asked our client to pay for the value, pay the rescue centre of the value of Sylvie, which of course is tragically low, you know, due to this property status. Um, 
but you know we have strong suspicions and reasons for believing so that you know the the reason why the judge relied on their discretion was were due you know was due to the uh, the welfare considerations so we just really see this as you know something to build on and something again to ensure that you know as, as we get as we move forward the welfare of an animal is is put first you're definitely kind of already seeing those hints maybe not kind of clear in the black letter law but you know, in how the law is administrated on a case-by-case basis. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, in this case, potentially, whilst it's not, you know, this groundbreaking precedent we're hoping for in the future, it's just a real example of an individual just wanting to keep, you know, their companion animal, look after an animal, and and potentially is starting, you know, starting that, that move towards a more accurate reflection of animals under the law. And so this might kind of coincide, but would you say this has also been kind of, you know, your highlight moment on the job so far? I mean, it's definitely one of them, but I can't claim that one because it actually wasn't my case. So, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) vicariously, I can say it is, but no, I mean... It's It's a team effort. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, my colleague David said it was, but I I think it was down to him, really. Um, but yeah, there's there's been so many and that that's, of course, one of them. And the launch, you know, the launch is amazing, just just setting up an animal law firm that can do this work feels like a massive highlight. But I think for me it would be a case I was involved in, which involves, um, what was called, uh, on social media, it's called hashtag 53 pigs because this case involved 53 pigs, but then the pigs started um, giving birth. And so 53 (laughs) pigs became redundant, but still, (laughs) it still goes strong to this day, the 53 pigs. I think it's probably closer to 100, to be honest. Um, But anyway, this case involved, um, it was a welfare, a pretty serious welfare case um, on a farm where the farmer was just not looking after their animals. The original case involved something called Smokies, which is, um, I believe it's it's a type of food that is not allowed in this country due to kind of the hygiene of how the food is made. But this farmer was was making uh, this product, but the farmer was also neglecting other animals on their farm, including these, these pigs. So anyway, this whole operation uncovered all of this and, you know, had to deal with the animals essentially. Anyway, the, 53 pigs essentially were deemed a disease risk. So they weren't going to be sold on to another farm. They weren't going to go through the market system. And instead, they were all going to be killed um, due to this disease risk. So anyway, our client, and in fact, a coalition of individuals and groups heard about this. And and our client was, in fact, a sanctuary offered to home these pigs, you know, on the grounds that they wouldn't go into the food chain, so the disease risk wouldn't be an issue, and would be able to provide, you know, a home for these pigs for the rest of their life, and, event- and essentially just avoid wasteful slaughter, right? You know, the- this home for these pigs that had already endured so much. They weren't having much luck with the local authorities in, in you know, in, in arguing this, and that's where we step in. They then instructed us, and we got involved, and essentially we just started to make the case that you know the the power that they were relying on to have these pigs killed was a power under the one animal welfare act and we just made the case that you know it'd be pretty dire if the animal welfare act which is designed to protect you know the very few the very few protections animals have but if this animal welfare act is being used to 
kill animals in a non for non welfare related reasons. You know, you can understand putting down an animal, in, you know, if, if it was for welfare related reasons, but for non welfare related reasons, and for when you know there was a, and when there was a home being offered for these animals, we just made the case that that would be a pretty cynical and unfortunate use of the Animal Welfare Act. Anyway, regardless of of whether that argument would be successful in court or not, luckily it didn't have to go to that go that far. And in fact, to be honest, actually just a side note, lots of our cases do just tend to be um, the assertion of legal pressure behind the scenes without the need for litigation. Anyway, this argument and the fact that you know our clients did build up a you know did build up some momentum with their campaign, it applied enough pressure on the local authority that they did, in fact, concede and allow these animals to be rehomed at the sanctuary. Now, the reason why this is, for me, one of the highlights is because we actually went to go to the sanctuary. We went to the sanctuary to see the animals. And, you know, it's very rare in this line of work that your work has, um, it's kind of a direct direct saving of animals quite often you know it's more systemic issues it's on the paper it's on paper and so this was one of the very few occasions where I could look at an animal or rather close to 100 animals <laughs> and feel that kind of sense of pride that these animals you know are now living out their full life in this wonderful sanctuary oh that's amazing are, are they still there today I'm guessing they are you know. <laughs> <laughs> nice little sanctuary yeah this brings me to a point throughout our conversation you know, you, your passion for animal protection and animal welfare is, is very clear. Did you always know you wanted to do animal protection law as a career? No. And that, I mean, to this day, that confuses me as to how I didn't join the dots, really, because you're right. I've always really cared about animals. Um, but no, I just wasn't really aware of it as a field. And I imagine people listening to your podcast aren't really aware of it as a field. Um and I suppose maybe largely that's because it it really wasn't one. It's only fairly recently in this country. I did, however, know that I wanted to do something, you know, that helps vulnerable vulnerable individuals. You know, that's always definitely been a driving force of mine. So how did you then kind of, you know, transition into animal protection law? Or what, what made you say, you know what, kind of, I want to start the UK's first animal protection law firm? Yeah, I think it's been a a tale of twists and turns really so like I said always cared always wanted to protect or help protect the vulnerable in some way um it was really just a case of as soon as I became aware of it so I became aware of animal law as as a kind of an area when I was studying my LPC and at that point I got involved with an animal law charity and set up in fact set up the nationwide student group at that point and in fact I managed that for for around 10 years I've only really recently stepped back from that but even whilst doing that I thought because of course animal law as a practice area didn't exist I just assumed I would be doing something like that as a you know as a voluntary thing on the side of a, of a more conventional practice area and at that point it was looking like intellectual property law but then at some point whilst you know working as an intellectual property lawyer a job came up at an animal charity to work, not really as there, which was quite unique. I mean, to this day is unique. It wasn't even as an in-house lawyer. It was a campaigning legal lawyer. It was using what I'm talking about now. It was using animal law, the substantive animal law, and helping to kind of campaign on, you know, on that, uh, on that basis. So anyway, this, this job came up. The charity uh, is Cruelty Free International and, you know, leapt at the opportunity, took, of course, you know, 
took a huge salary cut because turns out her, <laughs> turns out animal law is, is not a how you get rich. But um, you know, have not looked back. Have not looked back. I the joy of doing an area of law that is something that I'm not only passionate about and feeling like I'm making a difference and helping, but also just find fascinating. It just doesn't feel like work. It feels like every day I'm enjoying learning more. I find that quite interesting um, without getting to the specifics of, of numbers or, or anything, but for a lot of kind of law students and, and law graduates, they feel that this binary divide between, you know, money and, and kind of passion, uh, you know, security and, and the freedom to pursue what you actually enjoy doing. Now, obviously kind of, it, it sounds like in retrospect, you know, by all means, best decision ever, but I can also imagine, you know, making that jump, you must've been kind of quite scared at, at the prospect of, of, you know, what your, your new kind of career was going to look like. So I'm just wondering if you, you would mind kind of sharing a bit more insight on overcoming the, the fear of financial insecurity or the perception of financial insecurity in these lesser known practice areas or, or careers like animal protection law. Yeah, it, it's, it's such a good point. And it's funny because I do actually remember, I remember you know, having to look at the numbers and and I was doubting my decision and I was, you know, and, and I, but I, I kind of second guess myself at the time. And it seems again, crazy now, knowing how much I know now, knowing how much I enjoy this job compared to previous jobs, but yeah, it's, it's real. Like comparing salaries is a real concern that everyone faces, myself included, even though this is dream job territory, even me with that in mind, still found it quite difficult to take that leap because money makes a very compelling argument. And so how did I do it? I think kind of probably blindly jumped is the answer there. Um, I do hope in time, you know, animal law will become competitive. It'll never be, you know, it'll never be anything like commercial law salaries, but I'm hoping, you know, it's going to be as competitive as any kind of legal campaigning charity. So Client Earth is probably another good example of one that uses the law to further campaigning. And I imagine they pay, you know, a fairly decent salary. So in time, I hope animal law does kind of match that. Um, but yeah, for now, it definitely doesn't. We're on a promising journey to get there. But I would definitely say that for me personally, being interested in a practice area is just is so much more important than the money. For me personally, it just the quality it brings to your life is just priceless. That's the truth. Especially, you know, if you're going to be dedicating so many hours to your week and, and to your life that you'd want that to be something that you truly are, are passionate about, you know, whether that be, say, for some people, intellectual property law, whether that be for some other people, kind of environmental law or animal protection law, you know, if, yeah. if you're going to be dedicating such a large part of your life and, and going to make a career out of it, it might as well be something that really responds to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so then you take this job at this charity. What then makes you go and decide, I'm going to start up a law firm? What, what, what tickles that entrepreneurial spirit as to you know, set up the UK's first animal protection law firm? Yeah, I think so. When I was working in this um, animal protection charity, I was working, in fact, I knew him prior to this, but it's the first time I'd worked with him, David Thomas, who is the co-founder of Advocates for Animals. And he, in fact, told me that he had wanted to do this for, you know, a very long time. I think kind of probably 10 years before I came on the scene, really. But I think, you know, he was kind of working in the field largely alone and it just was more an idea bouncing around rather than something that was being put into practice. And I think it's really, like with anything, it helps to do it with someone, doesn't it? It helps to kind of 
have someone to to motivate you and to motivate each other. And so I really think it was kind of, in some ways, it was the winning combination. It was David with all his years of experience. And it was a kind of, at that point, fairly young upstart with, with you know, energy, with energy to do <laughs> and probably just the right amount of, you know, naivety as well. And so what's it been like? like what's it like to, to start your own firm? Like, I, I find that so interesting. It, it, it must feel kind of cool to be able to say, you know, I I'm I own my own law firm or you know I started my own law firm. <laughs> like it's, I don't know if I've got I don't know if I mean yeah you're right it is cool I was just gonna say I don't know if I've if I've got comfortable enough to say that yet. In fact, sometimes I find myself still describing myself as a solicitor. I'll say I'm a solicitor at Advocates for Animals, and I have to remind myself, come on, you co-founded it, say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's incredibly enriching, um, of course, to to set up a law firm you know you see so many different skills that you kind of even didn't know you had come into play and that's that's a really rewarding feeling it's also obviously incredibly stressful you carry a lot of weight not just the weight of people you work with and trying to make sure that you know it's a sustainable model but also the weight of you know you're creating something and you're so invested in it that you really want to see it succeed and that's yeah that that stays with you and it motivates but it also stresses you um I definitely didn't go into this area thinking it'd be easy at all but I think it is really hard to imagine the pressure of getting a business off the ground and maintaining that until you actually do it there's kind of no way of seeing all these different kind of obstacles and roadblocks that come up along the way until you're actually doing it um yeah the positives are of course that setting up a law firm in an area that I'm incredibly passionate about but the you know the negatives are that and the challenges not negatives challenges are you know that we're all we're all doing we're a startup so we're all doing the job of you know several people essentially and and learning different skills as we go so you know I'm learning things like accountancy and you know and, and marketing and that's you know again that's rewarding and it's quite empowering to have those skills but it's yeah it's a lot it's a lot on your plate for sure I mean it sounds like a, a bit of like a, a one a one person band job I mean in this case kind of you're, you're a couple but just, just the the monumental size of of what you're doing, and, and still finding the time as well yourself, kind of you know with the fifty three pigs case to be balancing you know getting a business off the ground while still kind of you know advising clients. I can imagine can be quite overwhelming, although as well extremely rewarding in terms of you know symbolically what you represent, advocates for animals, but also kind of the direct impact that you guys are having. Yeah, absolutely. So. Now, let's say kind of law students, you know, law graduates of the future, they want to get into animal protection law. What are the skills that you think um, they should be developing or or what are the things, uh, you know, the areas or or kind of uh, the the knowledge that they should be acquiring if they want to get into this field in the future? Yeah, so I think kind of attributes that I think people working in this field should have are things like passion, compassion and empathy. Um, But you're right that, of course, knowledge is, you know, knowledge of this area is also something that law students interested should be starting to build up. So I think, yeah, the attributes, I think, if you're interested in this area, they will probably already be there. But in terms of like knowledge of the field and how they can do it, I think, you know, there are resources to to be looking into. You should you should be looking at the legislation, you know, again, just one of the things I notice when I'm talking to people about this area is that 
you know, it's the first time people are being introduced to the legislation and hearing that actually there are, there is this kind of body of law out there that people just aren't really engaging with. So, you know, I do I do advise that students really get familiar. And it's something that, you know, even when I was volunteering in the field, wasn't necessarily familiar with the entire legal framework. So just really kind of piecing it together and, and seeing the difference. Yeah, the, the, the difference. Yeah, the different substantive law we have out there. It's fascinating. Like it's fascinating. It's fascinating to put this jigsaw together. So that's something. And also just getting involved, learning about the animal movement, learning about the the different groups, learning different ways to kind of problem solve. So you know, it's it's really a very creative field. You're you're essentially working in kind of uncharted territory, and your clients will want solutions to problems, and you need to look at ways where the law can facilitate that and that might be the substantive animal law but it might be you know like I said earlier helping with undercover investigations and helping with campaigning materials and you know looking at things like another thing that we do is looking at things like advertising standards and seeing if you know seeing if a sort of a company that's selling animal products is mis-selling and just really looking at ways to help your clients with their campaigning objectives so yeah really honing those kind of problem solving skills is another thing that I think um law students interest in this area should really be developing fantastic and more, more generally I mean the legal job market has always been competitive, but especially now with the pandemic, uh, I think it's kind of, you know, doubled down on the competitiveness. And on top of that, added a sense of bit of doom and gloom for students and, and graduates who were unfortunate enough as to kind of not secure uh, a job. And as, as we've both noted in our previous conversations is that law is one of those areas and, and degrees in which from the beginning, there's already that pressure in securing employment. So I was wondering kind of, you know, in your experience also kind of having shifted from say the commercial to now kind of, you know, started to, to working in charity and then kind of starting up your own law firm, what words of inspiration do you have to people who are uncertain about their future and their career paths? Yeah. And of course I've been there and I, and I, and probably like you said, in probably less scary times as well. I, you know, it, it's terrifying, you know, it's really, and it feels like it's never going to happen, doesn't it? When you're applying for, when you're applying for, you know, your pupillage or your training contract. So my advice would be to just hold in that, you know, for almost every person I know, it's been a numbers game to get their legal career off the ground. So just hold on in there. Don't give up don't lose sight and just keep on applying, keep on, you know, plodding on and, and it will eventually pay off. It certainly did for me. And I was definitely in the position where I thought this is never going to happen. I'm never going to be a lawyer, but it, it does, it does eventually, something does give. And, and before you know it, you're slaving away like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. Everyone, everyone will get their, 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 their time to shine with these a yeah. hundred hour work weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, now, I like to usually end off all these conversations with a bit of a fun question round. So you've, we've discussed just, you know, the importance and, and your passion for animal protection law. I'm quite curious to see what law subject did you most hate in law school, whether that be in the LPC, the LLB? Yeah. Um, so I think it was EU law. And I think that's so strange. I just remember it not making sense. And it didn't matter how many textbooks I read or how many, it just didn't make sense. It felt like it was this enigma that no one could crack. And it's the weirdest thing now because I've done a lot of work in EU law, a lot of practical work. And I, it, 
I think what happened along the way is the penny must have dropped and suddenly it's like, ah, oh, this is how it works. <laughs> I think you have to really practice in the area to see because I think there's so many different, you know, bodies within the EU and the relationship with the UK law. It all just seems like it's mindful that you're never going to, you know, decipher. And then at some point you do and you've cracked it and it all ends up. And I mean, to be honest, with Brexit, what I really smugly enjoyed doing was explaining things to people. <laughs> so, I, so funny, yeah, I've become a, I've become a bit smug with EU law now, but I definitely remember at university not liking it at all. Yeah, I can imagine, especially when, when you spend with your other eight kind of LLV subjects, with all your other law subjects, you know, the, the, the methodology as to how to approach it is consistent and then you get into EU law and it's just a whole other ball game mm. you know just a whole other level of abstraction yeah you don't know where to begin you know where do you, where does it start and where does it end <laughs> how does it connect Absolutely. yeah you tell me <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on today Edie if any of our listeners have any questions and want to reach out to you can they and if so how yeah please do I mean we're always really interested to talk to anyone who's interested so I mean first of all you know feel free to follow us on the social media we're on all of the main platforms our handle is at uh, Animal Lawyers UK so do follow us and you can see some of the work that we do that's a, a way to kind of yeah learn what's going on in this field but also feel free to reach out so our website um, you can find us at advocates-for-animals.com and on there you can find our contact details so do reach out you can even address an email you know to me and I can pick that up and get back to you. Fantastic. Well, there you have it, folks. Thank you so much, Edie, and I wish you a lovely day. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Master Show, folks, if you enjoyed learning about animal protection law and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Edie. We've linked a LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Special thanks to our unsung heroes for the week, Claire Heiberg for editing and producing the episode, Andrew Waddell for scripting the show notes and blog posts, and Matt Gedrich for the absolute banger of the theme song. Thank you so much to everyone for tuning in to Legal Tea. We've hoped you've enjoyed this season and ask that you stay tuned for an even more exciting brew next fall. Till next time. Mm-hmm.